0: Good morning. All right, again, my name is Marcus Nobles, and I'm the campus ministry associate for RUF at the University of Alabama A&M, just right up the road in Huntsville. Um, For those of you who don't know what RUF is, it's Reformed University Fellowship, and again, it is the PCA Church's college ministry. So the PCA Church uh, specifically takes um, ordained pastors and places them on campuses, and right now RUF is on about 180 campuses all throughout the U.S., and they also have um, campuses um, overseas, and they also have international um, uh, ministries that operate on um, national campuses for international students. So the PCA Church is really doing a mighty work on the college campus um, throughout the United States and uh, across the globe. And I have the honor and privilege to be the campus pastor for Alabama A&M, which is an HBCU, again, up in uh, Huntsville. and. Um, This analogy that I love to use about RUF is that we're the food truck of the church. We get to take the best parts of what the church does and package the gospel in such an irresistible way and drop it off on the campus and drive it and park the food truck right in the middle of campus so that students can come and get a taste of the gospel. And in that food truck analogy, of course, we're not the restaurant, we're not the church, we're just a piece of the church that got dropped off on campus. So it's my pleasure and my honor to be able to not only package the gospel in a beautiful and irresistible way and drop it off on campus, but then in turn point students back to the church. That way they come and get not just the taste of what our UF has to offer, but the full menu of what the church has. And what a beautiful opportunity that is to share the gospel in such a particular way. I jokingly tell people all the time that I have the best job in the world. I get to throw parties for college students so they can know and love Jesus Christ. Like, how awesome is that, right? <clears throat> so today, we're going to be digging into some scripture. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. And 1 Peter is this circular letter that was written to the first century church, and it was given to these people who were, as Peter calls them, elect exiles, right? They're God's chosen people, but they weren't where they were where they wanted to be. They were um, separated by the, dis- by the dispersion of uh, the Roman Empire. And it's amazing how scripture like this fits for us as believers right now today, even though it, it wasn't directly written to us, but it was definitely written for us. Amen. And this chunk of scripture is what we've been digging through in Bible study at at Alabama A&M with RUF. And it's incredibly amazing how it fits so well for college students, in particular, as elect exiles, as these dispersed people who aren't at home, but are trying to find a way to gather together in worship. And Peter does an incredible job of encouraging these first century believers in some things that we know that are true as Christians. And then he challenges them with what to do with it. So I, I've titled this sermon, "What to Do? What do we Do now? How do we walk in a Dark World?" Let's read first Peter. If my technology will cooperate, there it is. First Peter, chapter one: Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Hmm. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it, was, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Thus in today's reading of God's holy and inspired word. The grass may wither, the flowers may fade away, but the word of God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you humbly to say thank you thank you for allowing this opportunity for us to gather together as like-minded believers and to dig deeply into your word. Father, as I preach to your people, let them hear you and not see me, and let me be poured out, and let, and let all of us be filled back up with you and with you alone. Father, let these words pierce and be written deeply on the tablets of our hearts, and as we go forth from this place, let us find more of you and less of ourselves. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've experienced a hard year. Amen? If you really think about it, we've experienced a hard couple of years. When I first started to put this sermon together, coronavirus was just sparking up. And I remember thinking how the world couldn't spiral any harder than it was spiraling at that point. How wrong was I? Right? In the past couple years, we've experienced and survived some things that we never thought we'd have to even go through. And what's amazing to me is that even in all of that struggle and, and everything that we've had to face and overcome as like-minded believers, we still have this book, this collection of writings and letters that were put together for us right now. And it's amazing to me that there are writings in this really, really old book that still apply so well. And it's great that um, in being a college campus pastor that I get to take these writings from this really, really old book and show students how it fits them right now today. And what's amazing is even though when I first wrote this sermon, it was for students, it fits us so well. So what do we do now? How do we live in a dark world? I'm sure that when Peter first wrote this letter that he thought the same thing that I did when I started to compile this sermon. Things can't possibly get worse than they are right now. And Peter gives some light into the darkness with this letter here in the Bible, right? And it's a letter of encouragement that he addresses to the elect exiles, these exiles of the the dispersion which would have been in what's thought to be modern day Turkey. It's this letter that shows how early Christians encouraged one another in deep situations of depression, when things got really bad, when it was really dark. And I'm always amazed again at how well these texts still fit for us right now today. So it begins with some things that are true And then in verse 13, it kind of shifts and starts to talk about what do we do with that, right? So let's unpack some of this text. Verse 1 and 2. You have been elected by God. Amen? You are hand-chosen by God. Mm. John 15 and 19 says it this way. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Sometimes when things get dark and it's hard and life is heavy, we have to remember some things that are true. And one thing that I know is true is that we are hand-selected by God. We are his elect exiles. And even when the world may hate us, we're still his chosen people. Amen? You may feel sometimes exiled, but you are still chosen and elect. That's what Peter's saying here in verse 1 and 2. Verse 3 He has given us a living hope. Amen? Amen. His Son that died for us and is resurrected from death, Jesus is our living hope. He is alive, and his hand is at work in all things. So when it gets dark and it gets heavy and we don't know how to survive, remember this, that's true. We have a living hope. Amen. Verse four and five. He has given us an inheritance that will go on and on forever. And the best thing about this inheritance is that it's kept up for us in heaven. It's not even here on earth. I don't know about you, but it makes me feel warm and fuzzy on the inside to know that the thing that I have that I can trust in the most is a living hope and an inheritance that is stored up for me in heaven that this world can't touch and this world can't take away. Amen? So when things get dark and things get heavy and times get hard, remember these things that are true, right? Verse 6 through 9, even though we may suffer For a while here on earth, it produces a strong faith and allows us to always have joy and obtain salvation. Even though we may suffer here, even though things may not always be good, even though things may not always go our way, even when the pandemic drags on for years and years, and even when literal war breaks out on the, on the face of the earth, and we suffer, and we have trials and tribulations, it provides for us a joy that is inexpressible to the rest of the world. Why? Because of these things that are true. Because we are God's elect exiles. Because we have a living hope. Because we have an inheritance that's stored up for us in heaven. We have access to joy that makes no sense. Amen? Spurgeon said it this way Even when a Christian is most distressed by various trials, what a mercy it is that he can know that he is still elect of God. Any man who is assured that God has foreknown before the foundation of the world can very well say, We rejoice greatly. We can rejoice in our trials because our faith in Christ and the salvation that he and he alone brings provides an undercurrent of joy and great rejoicing that is always present. It is that faith that is the sure mark of our election, of an eternal election. It's the genuineness of that faith that gets tested by trials while we're here on earth that is the sure mark of our eternal election. And that's true. And the world can't change that. Amen? I don't know about you, but it makes me feel warm and fuzzy on the inside when things don't go right, but I still know that these things are true and that the world can't take them from me. Amen? You have genuine faith, you have indefinitely more than he who has all the world and has no faith. Amen. Verse 10. We have what the prophets proclaimed. Did you know that? That genuine faith that gets tested by trials, but comes from a risen Savior who is alive and is keeping our inheritance up in heaven. That's what the prophets proclaim. And it's even the thing angels long to see. We have something that even angels look for. Did you know that? Faith in a risen living savior that provides an undercurrent of joy that's inexpressible to the world is what the prophets proclaimed and what even angels searched for. You have that. You. Because you are God's elect exile. Even when you're exiled, you're still God's chosen people. And the world cannot take that from you. Amen? Amen. I don't know about you, but man, it makes me feel some type of way. (laughs) Amen? Amen? Now, what do we do with all of that? What do we do with those first 12 verses? How do we operate as Christians in a dark trying troubling world oh excuse me verse 13 starts to give us some insight into that peter tells us to change how we think here in verse 13 it's funny in seminary as you start to dig through language the professors always tell you when you see a therefore ask what it's there for right and the first thing in verse 13 is therefore Why is that there? In this case, Peter is preparing to state some ethical implications that come from all this doctrinal teaching in these first 12 verses, right? Because of all of those things, now do this. So there's a shift here in verse 13. He says, prepare your mind for action. In the Greek, that literally translates to gird up the loins of your mind, right? Does anyone know what it means to gird up your loins? Like think think, think way back when, when like men would wear the long tunics. If you had to take action and, and do something strenuous, you would have to gird up the loins of that tunic so that you could move your legs freely, right? Peter's telling us here to gird up the loins of our mind. And I love that phrase because we see it again in Job right? When God tells Job to gird up his loins and prepare for action like a man. Ooh, those are fighting words, right? And that's what Peter's telling us to do, is to prepare our mind as if we were getting ready to fight, to gird up the loins of our mind, and to bring under control all the loose-flowing thoughts that would slow our spiritual progress. So because of these things that we know that are true, that the world can't take from us, Now gird up the loins of your mind. He says to be sober-minded. And the Greek word sober here doesn't just mean to not drink, but it means to think clearly, to have self-control, to be morally decisive. Without balance and full control of the mind, men are liable to reel back and forth between various intoxicating ideas about doctrine and conduct. And our subconscious mind starts to affect our outward actions, right? So be sober minded. One commentary says it this way the proper response to the grace of God is disciplined self control. What's feeding your mind? Proverbs says it this way As a man thinks, so he is. What's feeding your mind? Mm. and then he says think hopefully right to set our hope fully on the grace that is being brought to us by Jesus Christ amen there is something coming that is greater than all of this amen that thing is Jesus we as Christians should set our hope fully on Jesus What's your hope set on? What is your hope set on, church? Set it on the grace that is being brought to you in trust, without reserve, that the grace of God that is even now being revealed to us day by day, Jesus Christ is coming. Amen? As I was first preparing this sermon, I was talking to my wife, Jessica. She read it with me and she compared it to running a race, right? We prepare for a race that we're running as Christians by preparing our minds and having self-control and setting our hope on the finish line. And for us as believers, that finish line is the coming of Jesus. Amen? Jesus is standing at the finish line of our race, waiting to welcome us and say, well done, That's what you set your hope on, on the finish. And for us as believers, because of these 13 verses that we know that are true, our finish line is Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. Amen? If we're going to survive living in a dark world and in dark times, we must prepare to run our race well and to be sober-minded and to set our hope on Jesus. Amen? Now, verse 14 through 16. In verse 13, he tells us to change what we think. In verse 14, now he tells us to change what we do. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Here, What we do, obedience and holiness, are like two sides of the same coin. Do not conform to your evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. There's a similarity here between the writings of Peter and Paul that's unmistakable in this verse. Paul tells his readers, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's Romans 12, right? This is an invitation to be better than the old you. It's an invitation to overcome those aspects of your former ignorance, to change what your mind is set on, to gird up the loins of your mind, to think soberly and clear-mindedly. It's an invitation to be obedient and holy in such a way that it changes how you do. Does that make sense? It's the aspects of our former ignorance that tempt us into conformity and to being more worldly. So this obedience that he's talking about here, it isn't contractual, like, do or don't do things so that you won't get punished. It's more of an image of our covenant with God. Do or don't do things because of whose you are. Hmm. Let me say that again. It's not a contractual obedience. Do or don't do things so that you won't get punished. But it's more of an image of our covenant with our creator. Do or don't do things because of whose you are. Amen. Obedience is a picture of the goal of God's covenant to his people. All the way back to Moses leading people out of Egypt. In Exodus 19, we see that God provides salvation to the Israelites long before he gives them law. He gives them grace long before he gives them rules. And it's not because obedience is contractual. It's because obedience is a picture of how much God loves you. And he loves you so much that you should image whose you are. Does that make sense? God gives a beautiful prologue of redemption and and reassurances to his promises in that old covenant. And here's the way that we see that worked out in this new covenant. Be obedient and be holy because you belong. Because you're his elect exile. And because of all of these things that we know that are true in those first 13 verses. Amen? Amen. Be holy. When people look at your life, at your words, at your actions, at how you live, at what you say, at what you do, they should think, that person is different somehow. Something about them is not like everyone else. They must be connected to God. They should see whose you are. Amen? There's a quote from John Owen that says it this way: Holiness is nothing but implanting, writing, and realizing the gospel in our souls. Hmm. Story time. I look just like my dad. I look just like him, spitting image. So much so, it's funny, both of my parents graduated from Alabama A&M, and when I came to, to take this position here on campus, I ran into some people who had gone to college with my parents, and when they looked at me, the first thing that they said was, Nobles, is that you? Because I look just like my dad. I have three beautiful daughters and praise God from whom all blessings flow. I have a wonderful, beautiful wife, and that's how they look so cute. But all of them have my face. They look just (laughs) like me. There's nothing I can do about it. If you see my kids, you say, yep, that one's Marcus. So much so that when the first one was born, as the doctor was holding her for the first time, the doctor looks at the baby, looks over at me, and before she could catch herself, she said, oh, yeah, dad, this one's yours. <laughs> Day one, not even a minute old, spit spitting image, she looks just like her dad. I look just like my dad. Likewise, we should all look like Christ. God should be able to look down from heaven and say, that's my boy. Look at him. He looks just like me. Look at how he treats people. <sighs> he looks just like me. Look at his heart. Mm, just, like, just like his dear old dad. God should be able to look down from heaven on us and smile and say, that's my child. Holiness is like wholeness. If we can pursue God and strive to be holy, we will at the same time become more whole more complete. Imagine if we stopped looking out to fill the holes that we have and started looking up. Imagine if we filled our missing pieces from what comes from above. Hmm. That's hard. It's hard to be holy It's hard to be obedient. But we have a perfect example in Jesus, in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? We have a perfect example in those first 13 verses and all those things that we know that are true, that the world can't change and that the world can't touch and that the world can't take away. We have a perfect example in a risen and living Savior who will one day step foot on the earth and we will see him for ourselves. We have a perfect example in Jesus. Amen. Holiness is the result of God's grace, not its cause. Let me say that again so you catch it. Holiness is the result of God's grace, not its cause. God shows us grace so that we can then become more holy. He doesn't ask us to be holy first and then give us grace. Amen? I'm almost done. Verse 15. Let's take one more look at this. In all of your conduct, in all of your conduct, in every department of your life, let Jesus in to everything that you do. One more story. I just moved here from Mobile for the past more than a decade I've been living in Mobile. I left Birmingham after high school and went to the University of South Alabama down in Mobile in 2008. And my wife, I met my wife there. Um, our, actually, our freshman year of undergrad, and we, we've been together ever since. Praise God, she didn't, she didn't kick me out. <laughs> so for years and years, we lived down there, close to the beach. In fact, we even got married right on the beach. And there's this particular spot on the beach in um, Orange Beach that that we love. It's our spot. We always go there, right? And we've been going there for almost a decade. Anybody here ever travel down to, to, to Orange Beach or, or, or Gulf Shores? You guys have a mental image of what I'm talking about? It's gorgeous, right? And so for years and years, we could go to this spot on the beach that was our spot, and we could park our car, we could walk onto the beach, we could hang out, do whatever we wanted. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was our spot. A few years back, they started putting up tolls, toll booths for the parking spots, right? So now all the public parking spots, you have to pay five bucks to park and then you can go and enjoy the beach. Unless you're a resident, and you live in that county, then you get a little sticker that you can put on your, on your window. And when, you get to the, and when you get to the toll booth, right, to, to park at your spot on the beach, you can push a button, and it spits you out a ticket, and you don't have to pay. You can park and go and enjoy the beach. Jesus should be a resident at your beach, not a tourist. He should be able to park in the parking lot of your beach whenever he wants. He shouldn't have to pay a toll, there shouldn't be a barrier there. In all of your conduct, in everything that you do, you should let Jesus in 100% of the time. He should have a decal and it should be on your front window. And everywhere you go and everything that you do, people should see that Jesus decal in all of your conduct. Hmm. Can you imagine how well your life would be if Jesus was a resident for your parking lot and not a tourist? If he could park there at any time. Let him in everything. Amen? I'll close with this. How do we live in this dark world? We remember these things, who God is and who we belong to and whose you are. Amen? We remember that we have a living hope in Jesus Christ and that our inheritance is in heaven. It's not even here on earth and that the world can't touch it and the world cannot take it away And we remember that even if we suffer here on earth for a little while, our faith in Christ gives us joy that's inexpressible to the world. Amen? And then we think about these things, we prepare our minds, we gird up the loins of our mind, we become sober in our thinking, balanced and morally decisive, and we set our hope on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Amen? And then finally, we do these things. We be obedient and not conform to this world. We be holy and we look like Christ. And we do that in all of our conduct. We let Christ into everything. He should be our resident, not our tourist. Amen. Remember this. No one handles darkness better than the creator of light. Let God do what God does, because guess what, church? He's good at it, and he's been doing it for a long time. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come back to you again humbly as like-minded believers, not taking for granted the joy that comes from faith in a risen and living Savior. Father, thank you for being our God, and thank you for allowing us to be your people. Remind us that we have a living hope and a risen Savior, and that hope comes from Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And Father, help us to remember as we traverse through dark times that we um, have faith in Christ that gives us joy and gives us salvation. Help us to do these things and to to think of these things well. And Father God, write them on the tablets of our hearts so that when we go forth from this place, we can show people whose we are. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.